Chapter Five of Abandoned by William Clark Russell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Terence Taylor. Abandoned by William Clark Russell. Chapter Five. The wreck. The flying spur anchored at Falmouth Bay on the noon of October 13, 1890. She had no business at that port. When Mr. Blaney of Leaden Hall Street, her owner, read the report in the shipping news of her having touched at Falmouth, he would probably assume that the crew had given trouble. A Dutchman, perhaps, had stabbed an Englishman and the captain had been forced to put into Falmouth to supply the deficiencies caused by the knife, and to hand over the prisoner. As a matter of fact, Reynolds was here to fetch his wife's clothes, and the owner's demands on him as a skipper must yield to that skipper's claims upon himself as a newly married man. And now his wife was going ashore to fetch her clothes herself, and take them home with her, and leave him. The ship brought up with only her lightest canvas furled, for she was to sail again as soon as she might. It was noon, sweet and calm were the waters of this lovely harbour, glorious the land in the mantle of October, pleasant and fair to see the ship's floating upon the mirror, whose margin reflected the burning leaf of autumn. Lucretia was in her cabin when the anchor was let go. She felt the thrill of the chain cable as it thundered through the hue pipe, but did not know what it meant. Came a knock upon her door, the inevitable. Who is there? Followed. Mr. Rowland. Oh, Walk in. The second mate entered, purple and shiny, cup-like in form, very nervous in demeanour. If you are ready to go ashore, madam, he said, the boat is ready alongside, and I will steer you to the landing place. She started, not until then realising the arrival of the ship, into the pallor of her face past a subtler shade of whiteness, if one may so speak, indicating the presence of the heart. I shall be on deck in five minutes, she answered, and Mr. Rollins left her. In five minutes she was attired in hat and jacket, and with her went the umbrella which she had bought from Chepway Place. She passed through the companionway into the atmosphere quivering with brilliance, and without intention met the eyes of her husband, who was seated upon the grating abaft the wheel, in a place to command a view of the deck and the departure of the boat. She instantly looked away. No flush of cheek indicated emotion, no dullness of eye. The sudden gush of sadness from the springs of the soul. 
she saw Mr. Rawlin waiting at the open gangway, and went to him. Mr. Featherbridge was doing some business of the ship on the forecastle, but all the sailors on the deck, idling or working, took a look at that fine figure as it passed to the side, and, could their secret thoughts have been interpreted, literature would have been the richer by several pages of original ideas. The port quarter-boat had been lowered and manned, and lay under the gangway ladder. Without looking aft where her husband was, without a glance around her at the ship she was deserting, Lucretia put her foot upon the steps and descended, and took her place in the stem-sheets, where she was joined by Mr. Rowland, who, catching hold of the yoke-line, sang out, Shove off! The oars dipped, and Lucretia was going home. Reynolds, with his arms folded, watched the shape of the receding boat, watched the diminishing form of his wife, and his manhood broke him in a great sigh and a little hysterical shake of the head, as though he was wretched by an inward agony. But for his being in full view of the sailors, he would have covered his face and vented himself in the convulsed dry sob of his sex, to whom the tears of a woman who make men weep in their way are denied. She was gone. He rose and slowly went below, not unmarked by some of the men, who, rough seamen as they were, could, in their crude, uninstructed fashion, enter into his thoughts. He walked into the cabin, which had been occupied by his wife, and gazed around him. He looked at the trifling comforts, at the toilet fellows, which he had provided. He looked at the pots of flowers, it is true, as Tennyson sings after Dante, that a sorrow's crown of sorrow is remembering happier things. But the ship must start afresh. At sea, says Dana, there is no time for sentiment. The lily-white hand must be waved ashore, and the dark eyes of sweet Susan, reclining on a rock, may be full of tears. But Jack on board ship must heave and pull, must heave and raise the dead, must sheet home with a hoarse yo-ho, which slants tremulous to the mate's ear, unfaltering, though the heart-strings be crackling, gay as the leap of the sea at the bow, though the sailor's sweetheart is transformed into the pickled horse of the harness cask, at the pressure of her ruby lips into the benisons of the quarter-deck. Within three hours of the arrival of the flying spur in Falmouth Bay, the quarter-boat, in which Lucretia had been rowed ashore, was again hanging in its place at the ship's davits, and the crew were, for the second time since leaving London, breaking out the anchor to the melody of their voices and the cranking of the revolving windlass. The upper topsail yards were mast-headed, 
the top galleon sails and royals loosed and set, and the sinking sun shone upon that fair and still visible picture of the sea. A full-rigged ship under all sail standing out from the land, her bowsprit pointing to the violet line of the water in the south, every rope gleaming as though threaded by a hair of gold, every cloth coloured as though touched with a brush dipped in gilt varnish, every piece of brasswork burning with an eye that was like a little scarlet sun, a thin racing of beaded bubbles marked the progress of the keel, and the song of the sea when the heavens are bright and the waters restful, and the breeze was a pleasant impulse for the canvas, was chanted under the bows as the vessel slowly sailed out into the English Channel, out into the enfolding pinions of the evening, out into the star-studded raven darkness of the night on her long voyage to a port on the west coast of South America. The reader is to be spared on account of this voyage, of a sailing ship whose laden was bricks, coke and coal, not but that the true romance of the deep is to be found in such vessels, for if it dwell not in them, you shall seek it in vain in those steamers which, of all floating structures, are most familiar to readers of novels. The marine muse shrinks from the giant edifice whose walls might have been designed for the storage of gas, whose saloon is the coffee room of the huge hotel, whose engine room is indeed a noble submission of human genius, but on whose sliding rods and rotating cranks the fairy foot of poesy finds no platform. We passed to the month of February in the year 1891, and the date was the second. The flying spur was off the coast of Chile. Her voyage down to this period had been absolutely uneventful. Three days earlier, that is, on the morning of January 31, a man had come running aft to Mr. Featherbridge to report that smoke was rising from the fore hatch. The covers were lifted, and the cargo of coal in the fore and main holds was found to be on fire. Trenching volumes of water by the ton were poured in by hose, by bucket, through holes cut in the deck, in vain. The stench of sulphurous gases drove the men out of the forecastle, and the captain and mates from their quarters in the cabin. The island of Santa Cristo then bore a few leagues distance about west-northwest. On the 1st of February, the day following the discovery of the fire, which continued to burn with fury, rendering the decks too hot for the naked foot to endure, though no flames had yet been leapt up, it came on to blow from the southwest. It was first a fresh breeze in the tail of a heavy running swell, which it wrinkled with snappish little seas. But in the afternoon the wind had stormed up into half a gale, and the burning ship, with coils of black smoke streaming from her hatchways, 
flying low over the lee bulwarks, was hove to under her lower main topsail. A gale of wind and a ship on fire. It is difficult to conceive a more horrible combination of peril. A ship hove to on fire and an iron beach of an island close aboard. Out there, throughout the blackness of the night, throughout the leaden mum that hoved in fury as it came and stayed without brightening. The high seas were a sallow green and poured cataracts of foam into the valleys at their feet. The foretop galleon mast had carried away. Some sails had been blown out of their gaskets and were streaming in rags from the yards. The ship, labouring furiously, swung her spars in maddening shearings under the rushing soot of the storm, and the picture was ghastly and wild, not by reason only of the flashing of torn canvas, flogging as it swept shrieking as it was carried like a pennant at a rolling masthead, nor by the shattering of water falling like the avalanche self-hurled from the mountain brow, but by the leaping of flames through the forehatch, tongues of scarlet fire which soared like the furnace wings of the smoke, shriveling shroud and stay, blackening and cracking and cinder-coloured every mast and spar. In the morning, Featherbridge had been talking with Captain Reynolds in a consultation as to what should be done. If the weather moderated, the boats might live. If the weather held and the fire grew as it was growing, what must follow? It is well, said Reynolds, that my wife is not here. These were the last words that he ever addressed to his friend. For when the captain had spoken, Featherbridge went forward. The vessel at that moment plunged, as though she was going over the edge of the falls of Niagara. Before she could lift her bow, a huge green sea came with the roaring of a hundred thunderbolts aboard, and Featherbridge was seen no more. No one knew how he had perished, nor was he immediately missed. The mountain leapt of the sea and then the sudden volcanic uprush of flame paralysed the men with consternation. The three tremendous forces of nature were let loose upon and in, that frail and labouring and lamenting and brutally used example of human handiwork. The wind and the sea had united with fire and were a trinity of raging giant demons to whom the sailors they were straggling and cancelling, who opposed nothing but the beating hearts of men. The hour of panic must come. It came when the decks blew up between the fore and mainmasts, and liberating a belching hell of white fire, blinding as the sunbeam and roasting as the furnace. The seamen rushed to the boats. The second mate and a little crowd were lowered, but it was the act of men driven mad by fire and fright. In a moment the boat went to pieces under them, and they were battling in the water. The senses of a sailor suddenly left him, and he jumped overboard, 
flinging into the wind as he hurled himself from the rail, a wilder cry than any made by the gale. Reynolds had no orders to give, no counsels to deliver. To stay was to be broiled, to go was to be drowned. What instructions, then, could he convey at a moment in which the alternative that nearly every crisis supplies, and that enables the vigorous will to form its resolution, had been slaughtered by the wrath of the sea on the one hand and the rage of the fire on the other. But, faithful to the traditions of the British captain, he was the last to leave the ship. He pulled the life-belt over his head and got it under his arms, and standing on the lee side of the taffrail, watched for the lift of the sea, that his fall might not be far, and plunged. The ship roared herself out in flames and explosions, and much mighty hissing. The evening came, the night came, the dawn glimmed wan and sad along the eastern sea-line. The sun soared into a blue sky, along which sailed a thousand little clouds, like old men of war, and poured his glory upon an island glittering with dew, sparkling with cascades, radiant with foreshore of coral, strand, green with tall grass and little trees and bushes, standing in the heart of a shoreless sea like a many-faceted gem that flashes the green and yellow and red of the spectrum. It was the island of Santi Cristo, in latitude 40 degrees 16 minutes south, and longitude 80 degrees 39 minutes west. It is about one mile long and three quarters of a mile wide. Two small cascades fall from a hill and unite in a little horseshoe river on the southern side, prettily fringed with trees. Around the island, to the mouth of the Horseshoe River, at the eastmost extremity of this little sea garden, runs a beach of brilliant sand. In parts the ground is covered with brushwood, and some of the growths resemble, or perhaps are, casserina trees. The grass is long and coarse, and amongst it may be found ferns and mosses and mushrooms. Even in gentle weather the seas break in thunder on the coast betwixt the east and south of the island. The huge blue swell, even though increased by the cat's paw, slides with the weight of countless tons and bursts into the magnificence of foam as it recoils from the blow it delivers. There is a ceaseless play of white water on the north side, where a ledge of rock or coral comes within a foot or two of the surface and troubles the peace of the deep, even its most tranquil mood. The sun had been risen an hour when the figure of a man, lying on the white sand on the southwest side, stirred and presently sat up. He was in a life-belt. He was Captain Francis Reynolds, apparently sole survivor of the ship flying spur. No bodies of men were to be seen upon the white sand, no sparkle of wet spur, no blot of blackened beam invited the eye to the sea. 
the ship was absolutely vanished, and with her, her people, and nothing remained to denote that such a creation had ever been, and that a few hours earlier a ship of a thousand tons was on fire and struggling with half a hurricane, save that lonely figure in a life belt sitting on the coral sand. Trying to move his arms, he found them encumbered by the life belt. He languidly passed the thing over his head, but seemed to get no ideas from the ship's name that was painted upon it. He was sensible of a smarting pain about his left eye, and at the right-hand junction of his lips in the cheek, and, touching those parts, he found that he had been badly hurt and was bleeding. Had he viewed himself in a mirror, he would surely not have known who he was. He had been flung by the breach of the sea against a rock which had cut deep into the flesh and bone about the eye and ripped the end of the mouth. As likely as not, would lose the sight of that eye, and perhaps the other would perish in sympathy. His senses began to come to him and he felt his legs, and moved himself to try his ribs, and then got up and stood, and found that his bones were unbroken. He gazed somewhat vacantly about him, first staring at the sea, and the, then round upon the land, and again he cast his eyes upon his legs, and looked at his arms, and pressed his hand against his head, from which his cap had been washed. His catching a sight of one of the sweet and sparkling cascades made him feel as though his throat was of hot brass, whilst his tongue stung behind his teeth. He walked very slowly towards the foot of the falls, where they sang in a glory of froth and went away in a horseshoe-shaped river. He knelt, fashioning his hands into a cup, drank, and then he bathed his face, by which time his five wits were once more vigorous, and he clearly understood that he was Frank Reynolds, and that he had been cast ashore on the little empty island of Santa Cristo, and that, so far as he could judge, for the view of parts of the island were interceded by rising and little downs, he was the sole survivor of the crew of the ship. When his thirst was assurged, he felt hungry, and sent a look at certain birds which were wheeling about the island, petrels, gulls, whale-birds, and penguins. They were not many, but they gave a vitality to the air, and enriched its brilliance with the grace of their flight and the soft hues of their plumage but they were not to be come at for a meal. Reynolds' eye fell upon a creek, about one hundred fathoms long, in the bite of which was a flat rock. The water had sunk, and this rock was covered with coloured oysters, limpets, and mussels. He was an old hand. He had sought oysters at Sydney and elsewhere, and knew what to do. He looked about him for a hammer, and found what he wanted in a heavy cucumber-shaped stone, 
which was undoubtedly a meteorite. Armed with this stone, he slowly made his way to the creek, and stepping on to the rock, which was black and gleaming, salt-smelling and hairy with weed, he knocked off a meal of oysters, which he opened with a strong clasped knife he had carried about with him at sea for years past. He was a very good repast. When he had eaten as much as he needed, and whilst he ate he took notice of certain large fish of a rock-cod sort, floating deep in the crystal water betwixt the rock and the shore. He stepped from the rock onto the land, which was scarcely at the distance of a jump, and going to where the grass was growing, he seated himself under a tree, with his back against the trunk, and as quickly as a man dies whose heart fails him, he fell asleep. He slept for three hours, and if his good angel stood beside him and watched him as he slumbered, her heart would have been melted by pity, for never did ocean reject the life of a more forlorn figure than this broken and wounded man, scarce recognisable as the comely, somewhat military-looking Captain Reynolds, who had commanded the flying spur. The whole spirit of the mighty desolation round about was incarnate in him. When he awoke, he stared about as before, with a wondering eye, but was soon as sensible as ever he had been. He knew where he was, and that the coast of Chile lay at a distance of about two hundred and fifty miles. What were his chances of escape? He must keep through out the day a sharp look out for ships, and prepare and hold in readiness a big heap of rubbish to make a thick, black, tall smoke, with when a sail should shine upon the horizon. How was he to make fire? He might rub two sticks together for years, and scarcely warm them. This getting fire by friction is a trick which one must be a savage to have the art of. Fortunately for Reynolds, he carried in his waistcoat pocket a burning glass, a piece of crystal with which at sea he used under a high sun to light his pipe or cigar for love of the purity of the flame. So whilst the sun shone, he could never lack fire, and whilst those oysters clung to the rock, he could not starve, and the cascades of fresh water were as sweet to the palate as they were lovely in their glancings and flashings to the eye. Still sitting at the foot of the tree under which he had slept, he thought of his wife. Had he forced her to accompany him, she must have perished in the shipwreck. He knew, when he recalled with shudders those days of horror, of tempest, of fire, that when the crisis came he could not have saved her life, unless God's hand had brought her ashore, as he had been but his salvation of her would not have been of his working. What had he lost by the shipwreck? He had brought with him a hundred and fifty pounds, of which he had given ten to his wife, 
and this money had gone down, likewise all his clothes, charts, chronometers, and nautical instruments. Should ever he be rescued, he would have to begin life afresh. Would life, any form of life, be worth the effort of its maintenance, deserted as he was by his wife, ruined as he was by the sea? Never was any man more bankrupt in heart and estate than this poor lonely fellow, who had been guilty of the great blunder of loving not wisely, but too well. After looking at the brilliant beach, or as much of it as his vision compassed, as it swept from rock and soil into the tall feathering wash of the sea, for in every breaker that rolled upon that little island dwelt the power of the mighty Pacific. An idea visited him, and he walked down the coral stretch. He looked along it to the north, where it terminated at the margin of a little bay, whose low face of cliff was abrupt. Here and there were rocks, lumps of large grey stone, but no corpse, and no signs of a living man. He sighed, and a sense of solitude oppressed him. He clenched his hands, thinking, as he turned around to look along the beach towards the west, I am alone. The thought of the extinction of the sailors he had commanded, for he had been the last to leave the ship, and since no man had saved his life by this island, he knew that it was inevitable, that all had perished. This thought and the memory of Featherbridge, a shipmate he had loved, and the comrade of many a quiet watch, overwhelmed him, and he wept. He continued to walk slowly, and a speculation which seemed somewhat out of place in a maimed and hopeless castaway troubled his poor brains. He said to himself, As life is a property of vital matter, and as we are taught that nothing is destructible, what becomes of life at death? What has become of the life that enabled Featherbridge to talk to me? I can conceive, perhaps explain, the passage of heat and all forms of energy from the human body at death into other states. But what becomes of that property called life, which is in me now whilst I reflect? and which, as, like heat and all other things, it is indestructible, cannot cease to exist, because it has quitted my body. Perhaps, he mused, still thinking of Featherbridge and his drowned sailors, the belief in the human soul may be based upon our knowledge of the indestructibility of all created things. No, he argued to himself, Belief in the soul existed long before it was known that matter, and all the conditions of matter, cannot be destroyed, can only be changed. The hope of the soul is based upon the innate and inborn desire of every man to project his life beyond the grave. These were strange speculations to trouble him in such a place and under such circumstances. But the mind is not responsible for the ideas which spring in it. There is a frequent impertinence in thought, as, for instance, 
when you find yourself humming some tune of which you are heartily sick, but which teases you with irritating iteration. Be your mood what it will, for a man will hum such an air within himself at the graveside, or when occupied in business, which should utterly remove him from the vexing ghost of melody. He walked along by the beach, around the western extremity of the island, until he was within sight of the mouth of the little horseshoe-shaped river, and constantly as he walked he looked up at the slope or frown of land with a dumb and throbbing yearning, like a pain in his heart for the sight of a human figure. The sun was rolling low down the sky, and the west was gorgeous with colours, and in this beautiful light the two waterfalls, or cascades, leaping midway from an altitude of about three hundred feet, shone like ropes of fine pale amber, and the picture was made exquisite by the fern-like delicacy of the boughs of trees, defining their foliage and their branches upon the tender depths of the eastern blue. He climbed a green slope and gained the higher parts of the island, and looked about him for a spot in which he might shelter himself for the night. Hard by was a little dell, covered with mosses and other growths, and he observed on one side of it a horizontal fissure, about six feet deep, whilst the gap was about five feet. He gazed carefully about him in search of snakes or other dangerous reptiles, but saw nothing of the kind. That fissure, he judged, would provide him with a bed-place, so he walked towards a tract of tall grass, like guinea grass, and, pulling out his knife, cut down a quantity, enough to make a little bundle to serve as a pillow. This bundle he compacted by binding it with grass, which he knitted into witches, for this man was a sailor. He could lay up a senate, or weave grass into a hat. He put his pillow into the crevice, and went across the island to the beach again to get his supper off the rock. How sad were the splendid colours of the west! How heart-subduing the vastness of the solitude! The voice of the spirit of desolation was heard in the sound of the wind in the trees, in the organ-roll of crushed and seething swell, in the troubled rustling on the shoal, in whispers of running waters coming from afar. He got upon the rock, armed with his meteorite. It was but a long stride from the edge of the land to the rock. The oysters were large and sweet, and provided him with an excellent meal. It was a calm evening. The swell came rolling from the sun in liquid gold. The sea-fowl were fishing diligently, and some of them, whose plumage gave resilience to the western light, wheeled in shapes of brass and ivory through the air. Reynolds regained the shore, and ascending the slope behind which was the dell that was to shelter him from the night, sat down and watched the sunset and the sumptuous pageantry fade.
watched the sea-line that perished in the evening shadow, which was trembling with stars. He wondered how long he would be forced to remain on this island, and if it was his destiny to die upon it. And his imagination grew morbid, and he pictured his dead body supine, and the decay of it, till a shudder compacted his mind, and the tone of it grew more manly. Oh, for a companion, he thought, but one, but one to speak to. He tried to recollect the people who had been in his situation, and re could recall but two. Peter Serrano and Alexander Selkirk. It brightened him for the moment to recollect that both were delivered from the horrors of an island's loneliness. Peter, he remembered, was covered with hair when he was secured, and looked like a furry imagination of pagan mythology, and was frightful to see. A shooting star caught his eye. He followed the brilliant track of it, and then his chin sank, and he put up a short prayer to God for mercy. Though never religious, Reynolds was always a devout man. He had read and reasoned himself into a full conviction as to the being of a creator. It is ridiculous, he would argue, to talk of chance, when you witness design everywhere. If the theory of chance is right, then creation is nothing but a dice-box, the issue of every throw unforeseen. He held that in nothing is design more visible than in evolution, with its enduring elements of prevision and provision. If evolution were merely chance, creation would be chaos, and he once said to Lucretia, What the learned call chance, I, who am not learned, call intention. Look at this little daisy. Consider its colour, its form, the hand that grasps the petals, the airy beauty of the orange throne in the heart of it, on which the viewless shape of the queen of the fairies sits on moonlighted nights, and let the Darwins of the age call this miracle of the meadow chance, if they can, or dare. In taking a ramble in some fine scenery in New Zealand, he watched two birds, called Huia birds, and was struck by the intention in form, which their procure explained. The male had a short, stout beak, the female a long, curved bill. He observed that they earned their living in company thus. The male, hopping or flying to a tree, with his strong bill, knocked off the bark and exposed the grub, and the female, with her long curved bill, took the grub out, and between them they made a meal. Thus it will be seen that when this man prayed to God, his heart spoke with conviction that he was addressing a spirit who would give him heed, though he made no sign. It was lonesome sitting there with nothing but the voice of the sea to hear, and nothing but the sparkling suns of the sky to behold, for the island sank into ink on a moonless night. He rose and made his way to the dell, and got into the cleft 
and laid his broken face and weary head upon his grass pillow. He fell asleep and dreamed that his wife stood by his side. A cold star glittered on her forehead, and its radiation struck lances of ice into his heart. He awoke. He looked for his wife and saw nothing but the stars shining at the edge of the fissure above the dell. But she had been with him, and with him in that same repellent spirit of chastity that had sundered them. Why should we deal lightly with or speak in scorn of our dreams? Half our lives are formed of dreams. Whether the visions shape themselves to the slumber or dwell in the stare of the waking abstract eye. The boy dreams of the sea and of fairy lands forlorn, the maiden of that ideal man whom she shall not meet the side of the grave, the politician of power and the philosopher of the undiscovered born, the king of a people's love and the beggar of a copper ere noon. Rob the mind of dreams, sleeping or waking, and you extinguish one-third of the solid joys of life and two-thirds of its solid troubles. Reynolds fell asleep again, but his wife did not return. End of chapter 5 Recording by Terence Taylor